And what does it what does it say on the screen? Oh shoot, that says Art House Drive-In? Splittooth Media's latest film podcast? Aren't we the the co-hosts of that podcast? Are you Robert? Are you T? Oh snap! Is that is that our faces up in the sky? Uh, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I guess we'll be coming back here pretty uh, pretty often then, at least every week. At least every week, talking about at least one film or two short films, or I guess we'll be going on a on a journey through the world of our house film. I guess. Yeah, that's pretty. That's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> Come along, everybody. More room in the drive-in. I don't know how we got here, but I love it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Art House Drive-In, the podcast where I'm taking my, my buddy on a walkabout through the world of I'm a garden experimental film, artsy film, weirdo film. Feels like um, we've been walking about for months now, maybe. Maybe years. But uh, it's been fun so far. And I'm really excited for this episode because we have an illustrious guest with us. Uh, joining us today is Colleen Kinslow, uh, who is a printmaker, uh, writer, uh, painter, uh, editor of cadmium magazine which you can find at uh cadmiummag.com um there have been three volumes so far i actually i contributed to one and two um and it was lovely working with her i had a great time um so thank you for being here i'm very excited to have you here thank you both for having me i'm so excited to talk about the movie Mm -hmm. and speaking of uh speaking of which why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie that you picked out for us today? Yeah, so the movie in question is called News From Home, um, made by one one of the greatest filmmakers that I know. I don't know a lot about film like uh, Rob number one does, um, but <laughs> her name is Chantal Ackerman, and she's from Belgium originally, um, and... Uh, this movie is equally, absolutely perfect and incredible and also the bane of my existence. Hmm. And I love it because it's perfect, but I hate it and I hate the way it makes me feel. That's an interesting relationship you have right there. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, so I saw this movie uh, with my, one of my best friends, Raymond, he's a, film PhD student at Harvard and I went to Boston University and uh, so I was living in Boston and he and I would go to the Harvard Film Archive together and he would kind of do what you guys do right now he would bring me to see all sorts of films and this was one of them and I spent however many minutes in that theater like ball, like balled up on the seat with like my head in my hands, like sometimes covering my ears. I just like couldn't feel. I just, it was, I understand it perfectly, but it was torture. (laughs) See, I think that's super interesting because compared to uh, our last one, this was totally chill for me. I, I I wasn't being lulled to sleep, but I was, 
I was so relaxed just listening to the sounds of the city and her reading from her mom's letters. It was a really enjoyable experience over here. You surprise me. You surprise me every time we do an episode, T. I did not expect that reaction from me from this film because I had the exact same reaction as Colleen when I first saw this. I like mm-hmm. I saw it in a seminar that was um taught by Professor Charles Warren at Boston University, where it was a uh, Robert Gartner, Chantal Ackerman, Jean Rouche seminar. So it's like these powerhouses of documentary film. And when he showed this film, I wanted to bolt. I was just sitting in my seat being like, I cannot take this right now. I can't, I think I was having like a bad day probably too. And I was just like, I can't, I think I like looked away from the screen for half of it. Um, But then I, I watched it again in another one of his classes and loved it and was like, what was going on with me the first time? And then now watching it again, I love it even more. So it's like, I feel like I'm growing up with this film too, you know? Well, I guess also um, question for the two of you, are you guys big people watchers? Because I am, and that might've been part of why I liked this on the first time around. Yeah. It was nonstop people watching. Yes, I love people watching. I love, I I worked as um, a barista for like five years and really? I like loved it. I loved like seeing all the people, meeting all the people. I I loved it. But this movie, it's not so much the visuals as it is the sound mm. um, for me. And the, I... I love visiting cities. I did not love living in one. Um, so it's not so much the, the claustrophobia and the, the, the lack of trees and greenery of a city that gets me. It's the sounds and it's the, the constant. It, I felt like my eardrums were being braided. Yeah, I, I very much empathize with that reading as well. It's especially in the beginning where it feels like i don't know if this is just the criterion cut but it feels like it's raining in the background for a lot of the beginning of it and that sound intermixed with just bare city streets is uh maddening is not the right word but it's definitely panic streaking um especially but that's just so interesting to me because it was the exact opposite effect uh you you boggle my mind, sir. You're a mystery to me. I'm a boggle. What can I say? Uh, but I mean, like, I'm 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 very glad that you had that reaction. That's awesome. And I before we dive in, because I definitely I want to spend most of this episode on analysis, because I feel like I already want to like dive into a lot of the stuff you just said, Colleen. But um, I want to get into Chantal Ackerman as a as a powerhouse too. Um, so she lived from. 1950 to 2015 so she sort of recently uh left us which was kind of like a recent film tragedy like you hear a lot of directors talking about it um because she committed suicide um sort of tragically and um and it was very close to when her mother died as well who she was like very very close with as you can see from the letters in the film she was very close with her mother um so it was like a huge loss to sort of the cinema community but it's hard to not watch this movie and think about that yeah event and have it color it because you have to think about it outside of that but go on with the history i completely agree and you know what she's left us is just like sort of masterpiece after masterpiece not to be too 
um, dramatic about it. But um, so we have Jean Dielman. It's a very long name. I'm just going to say Jean Dielman from 1975, which is maybe her most well-known film and is sort of described to, as a, you know, from a lot of film people as like a moment in film history. Um, uh, I'll be honest. Uh, you've been saying that movie title for a few weeks now. And the entire time I was thinking of it, like John Dealman. And I, I was just imagining, <laughs> so I'm like, hi, I'm John Dealman. And now I see I was very, very wrong. Yeah, so it's, it's a long, long name. But uh, we're going to watch that on the show at some point. That would be a great episode to have you back on, Colleen, by the way. Just putting the seed in your seed in your mind um, for later. But, uh, you know, she also has uh, De Est, which is a lovely film. South uh, from 1999. De Est is from 1993. Laba in 2006. Um, and No Home Movie from 2015, which is very close to her death. Um, other than being a filmmaker, she taught at City College of New York and was a wonderful professor for young students. And today we're talking about News from Home uh, from 1976, which was shot in New York while she was living there. There's not really much to say production history wise other than that, but it's a great sort of snapshot of her life at, at that time. Um, I don't know what kind of synopsis T that you can really do at this point but you underestimate give my it a abilities shot. <laughs> yeah no i can absolutely knock a synopsis out here it's easy um so news from home is a slice of life almost documentary style sort of thing where she's filming uh just people going about their business people on the subway uh, empty streets, just the sights and sounds of New York at their most natural, uh, and is interjected here and there with letters from her mother telling her about family events, vacations, how they're doing, when they're getting sick, when they're getting better, and they're always asking her to write more because they miss her, and it, it breaks your heart a little bit because you don't know how often she's writing back, but it doesn't seem like it's enough. Um, I don't know. I just thought it. I I thought it was a really fun snapshot of life in the city back then, and I I personally enjoyed comparing it to uh, the memories that I have of the city. Which, granted, I didn't live there. I lived right outside the city, but I still went pretty often, and it was really cool seeing how it was different, and also how the attitude of the people were very much the same. <laughs> yeah, I was telling you this cut to Colleen before but it also sort of broke my heart the whole time because I miss New York so much so it's like I feel that uh from having lived there for two years as well but um now I'd love to broach into just gushing about the film in a thousand different ways but you know tied to the landscape like Colleen when you first saw this how did you feel about sort of the portrait that she was you know painting for you like how do you feel like New York City was presented in a way? Um, <clears throat> well, I think, I, I mean, I think it was as honest as possible. Um, it was, it's really bare bones. It's very, not rudimentary, but it's, it's basic in that it's not complex. She had a simple idea and simply executed it. And that makes the end result so effective, I think, because her idea is, okay, I'm going to take a camera, I'm going to set it up perfectly in the spot that I want to set it up in New York, and I'm going to get the shot. 
whatever that shot may be. Um, looking down a street, uh, in the subway, in a car moving. And I think she, I mean, I didn't live in New York in, in the seventies, but, uh, the same thing. I also lived outside of the city and have a very long-standing relationship with it. I think she captures it well. I think, um, um, like T said, the, the attitude of New Yorkers haven't changed, even though the landscape of it has changed very, very drastically. Um, and it, it kind of perfectly captures the way I imagined the city in the 70s, because one of my all-time heroes is Patti Smith, and she lived in, in New York at that time and describes it so beautifully with her and Robert Maplethorpe, a little bit later, more into the 80s but still, um, and, you know, I, my parents grew up in the same place. So when they think of the city, they think of it in the seventies and they're like, oh my God, don't go near Times Square. You're <laughs> gonna die, like, <laughs> you're gonna get taken. Um, I'm like, it's different now, guys, it's, it's different. But she kind of captures it the way that I imagined it, which is like the mechanical beast Mm-hmm. Um, the metal beast. Yeah. Yeah. And for me it's it's interesting because I think she gets as much out of the contours of the city as as humanly possible. Like I think she not dissects is not maybe the best word, but she like explores every contrast in the space to me in a lot of ways. Like in um the beginning she starts with that like claustrophobic shot of the bare city streets and the camera's in the center of the street and it feels like these buildings are like dwarfing her on every side and the depth of field just goes into the building, you know, at the end of the street. And then she cuts to a shot where depth of field is just going off into like infinity um, and like going out of the labyrinth and like the, the city street is so wide and there's so much room and it feels like a lot of what she keyed into is like how contrasting the landscape of New York is and like how different it can be from sort of place to place. Like um, it made me feel like, like she really sort of understands the like depth of the landscape in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. New York isn't just, I, I should also like put a caveat in. I would also say cities are just one thing, one look every every different part of the city and especially with New York because it's so vast and so um, sprawling that every every neighborhood every different place it everything is so different it's all unique each street is unique each each which just mirrors the fact that each person is unique mm-hmm. yeah uh, I was about to say like each street is unique but also the time that you're on that street it's di- every time it's different yeah, 100%. And I feel like even down to the light. That's one of my favorite parts of her presentation. And I think of um, the subway, especially. Like when she first shoots the subway, shoots the subway uh, it's underground in the darkness of the New York City subway. And for anybody who spent any time on that, it's very dark and sometimes <laughs> scary place unless you're taking it like three or four times a day and still it's still you know sort of ominous and then she shoots the subway near the end of the film when it goes outside and it's sort of 
bathed in light and light is like careening through the windows and everything that was once sort of like cloaked in shadow a lot of the times like people's faces the seats the 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 poles that you hold on to have this like incredible new life to them and i think that's something she does that's very special is like she's not just shooting these things in one way too she's showing the like breadth of what a subway car can look like like it seems like she's so careful in her attention to like every single space and and how it transforms like throughout the day especially you know it's funny you you mentioned attention mm-hmm. um there's this great line from ladybird the movie ladybird mm-hmm. um that where, you know, Saoirse Ronan's character is describing Sacramento for her college essay or something. And she's talking to, you know, the nun that is, you know, her teacher running school or something. And the nun's like, it, your, your college essay shows how much you love Sacramento. And she's like, what? I don't love Sacramento. Like, hell no. And, um, and the, the nun is like, well, isn't love attention? And you, you know, you're explaining it in such great detail that that attention is the love and the care that you put into thinking about this thing. And I mean, the attention that Chantal's given New York, um, I don't know whether it reflects love or fascination but it's clearly a deep emotion that is triggering it i completely agree yeah i think she i think that's why i'm also very attracted to her work because she has that sort of sense uh in all of her films to me and that gets to something i wanted to talk about as well is that um a lot of people when they write about this film especially they talk about like urban alienation they talk about how the city looks like a ghost town um, with, uh, here's a quote, uh, preternaturally empty streets and things like that. And Were they only watching the first shot? Yeah, I just don't, I don't get that reading at all because like I, I agree with you so wholeheartedly where you see that love in her technique just for her attention to space. Like I don't really get the sense of alienation that a lot of people see in this film. To me, mm-hmm. this, is, this is like a person that is so connected to her surroundings where she's absorbing all of the minutiae in a way that's like incredibly sort of inspiring to me you know yeah yeah and I remember actually at one point one of uh, her mom's letters uh, was talking about how people in their hometown were describing New York as something that's inhuman and yet the majority of her shots the thing that gives it the most life are the people in it Um, and so I thought that was a I thought that was really interesting. In my head, I'm like, oh, that's a fun coincidence, but obviously it probably wasn't a coincidence because apparently nothing's a coincidence in film. <laughs> oh, especially with Chantal Ackerman. Especially. Although that seems like an excuse to just be covering things like, things that you didn't expect. Be like, yeah, I, me- I meant to put that in there. Good eye, good eye. I used to do that in art school all the time. Back to <laughs> like, yes, that was exactly Thank you for I noticing. <laughs> And about the people too, like how, what were some of your favorite moments of people reacting to the camera? Um, personally, my favorite was the guy in the yellow, in the like yellowish green shirt on the subway, who was just like standing like directly in front of the camera, staring at it. <laughs> just like 
no fucks given. Uh, clearly this person is trying to do something here, but he did not care at all. And that just felt so quintessentially New York. I was very happy with it. I love whenever there's the kid, because the kid is just so carefree. They don't get, they don't, because adults are like, oh, what's going on? A camera? Oh my. And but kids are mostly like la la la. Just what's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, how big would you say cameras back then were? Like, obviously, I know how big they are now, but even like professional ones are still pretty hefty. So, like, mm-hmm. how big do you think she, she was rocking that thing? Velociraptor size. <laughs> dinosaur. Yeah. Casual dinosaur on yeah. the New York subway. <laughs> yeah. Probably not the weirdest thing it's seen. Seems like it was on a tripod too. So like even just like an imposing presence. And that's that's one of the most interesting parts of the film too is where sort of <laughs> sort of the boldness of where she places the camera too. She is in the center of the subway car. She is in the center of the goddamn street. Uh, she's in the middle of the sidewalk where like not only are people walking around her, but cars are driving around <laughs> the tripod. So it's like, that shows to me also sort of the, not, this might seem a little cheesy, but like the strength of her belief in that vision is like, this camera has to be in the center of the street. And, you know, I'm going to get a shot that is sort of unique too. Like she captures a lot of the symmetry of the space because she, you know, is standing in the middle of a of a, a carway and things like that. Like like Holly and I know that that is one part that really sort of spoke to you too as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, I I, w- I was ta- you know talking about this with you guys a little bit before, but you know in I I don't know film stuff that well, and I I I mean absolutely bombed my theory class for like art history. So I'm not good with terms or anything like that, but I know that, you know, in in film, the male gaze is extremely uh, dominant because um, the camera lens acts as the creator's eye. It acts as a character's eye. And so it <laughs> captures the world from a perspective and oftentimes that is a privileged male perspective but in in this film i i just kept thinking about her standing there in the street alone maybe she had a person with her but you know for the most part alone um in the 70s no less in the, in the 1970s in new york it's not exactly the safest place to be as a woman um and and that is just so amazing because she decided you know I am woman I'm going to sit here or stand here and claim this space for myself and especially as an immigrant too um it's exceptionally powerful stance yeah I can I I think this is for one that reason being a shining example of sort of how important this film is too especially in the the canon of experimental filmmakers is is very much like a boys club a lot of the times like people will talk about i like these filmmakers too but like james benning and hollis frampton and stamp brackage but like you know people like hitchcock are also revered too and um i almost have nothing but disdain for for that lad but um that makes this film sort of a shining light of a different form of cinema that to me doesn't get as much uh 
high as as much highlight as it as it very much should be for how much it like changes the canon as well you know right yeah right yeah i mean i a lot of a lot of like you're saying hitchcock and these big name male um filmmakers it, it extends to today i mean i think about taxi driver yeah which can, is a is pretty clear um kind of uh, mirror to this because of the very New York City-ness. It's also in like the 70s or 80s or something. I can't remember when that was made. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that was Scorsese, right? Yeah, and yeah. He is such a New Yorker and he is such a... Um, uh, can act as kind of like a foil to this because of... The, just the masculinity of Taxi Driver and the, um, like, the strength. Like, you wouldn't question um, a man standing out on the street filming something at, like, the way he captures things, but for the way she does with that sensitivity and the emotion. And you, you don't really think emotion when you think this movie because it's very... I guess you could say it's still because there isn't a lot of like her action behind the camera, like moving things, but it is somehow steeped with emotion because it's the everydayness that we all know the like the, the drudgery of going down the steps to get to the train to do the thing there. Like that's an emotion. Absolutely. And when it comes to being a female, you know, her standing and, and taking up that space, you can, I, I had, I had this thought is that, and I was talking about this with my friend back when we first saw it is women, a lot of the time in movies are considered space to be taken. Um, you can kind of think of that as, you know, the womb as a metaphor. Mm -hmm women are space to be taken up but she is reclaiming and saying no i am taking up this space because of my you know solidity and her view her camera lens is so solid those shots are like true gorgeous especially gorgeous. considering like the technology she had on hand at that time i mean there was no, they were flawless there's nothing wrong with them at all Mm -hmm. yeah and i think this film like you could say it's unemotional but i feel like it's overflowing with emotion in a lot of different ways like whether it's what you're talking about colleen and like especially the technique like maybe because like i'm a very like formalist dude when it comes to these sort of films but the way she sort of pairs her technique together um with this like so many different camera angles and so many different like ways of being inventive with the camera that isn't um three act structure and empathizing with characters and watching someone's journey and relating to them and blah 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 like to me this the technique is where the emotion is at this point and like and i sort of spoke about that on another uh podcast for split tooth where it's, it was about like abstract animation and to me the like abstract technique at this point is way is sometimes more emotional because it hits me on like a chemical level instead of me being like oh i relate with this character because i've 
been in this situation it's like it like hits it like hits your atoms almost you know i think if anything it's probably easier to relate to people or not people in this film as as if they're characters but it's easier to to relate to that everyday life like um colleen what you were saying i mean i would say almost anybody who's watching this film knows knows the feeling of uh walking to work uh going on the subway for the people who are living there um you know just like that feeling of your home neighborhood like i i think that that draws a more powerful emotion than say i mean taxi driver obviously like i i don't relate to taxi driver i relate to walking i relate to walking through new york at night though yeah yeah and and another emotional part of the film is obviously the letters like how do you what do you think Colleen like the letters add to these images especially like in the in the system of the film like emotionally too honestly honestly this is where I'm completely biased because my I think the reason why I I hate this movie so much and why I could not watch it again to like refresh myself because it was already burned in. It was like, it's yeah. that's going on anywhere up there. Um, but the reason why is, is you know, I, I also have a close relationship with my mom and have suffered from anxiety and depression. And um, my time living in Boston, my anxiety was was like another person that I was like living with. It was like an in-house roommate. Now it's so different because, you know, I'm on meds and they changed my life. But, and also because I work hard. But in Boston, that anxiety colored the way I experienced the city itself and the environment and and the buildings and the views and also because I'm a visual artist, those visuals are extremely, that's how I learn, I'm a visual person. And so those things are coupled together. So when I heard this movie, I was immediately like, oh my God, like it was like, it was like an anxiety attack, like just wrapped up in a present that was given to me on my birthday. And was like, Colleen, open this, congratulations. You did it, yeah. here's a cute little bow. Yeah. Box of <laughs> and, a bunch of bats fly out of the box. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. And so my mom literally would send me cards and I would talk to her constantly. And if I had insomnia, I would call her in the middle of the night. And so like hearing hearing that maternal voice coupled with these shots of the city, I'm like holy shit, I'm having some weird Freaky Friday moment right now where I feel like Chantal Ackerman. Yeah. And it just makes you wish she would just talk to her mom more. <laughs> yeah, write her oh. write her more. Yeah, and it's, it's strange because some of the descriptions on the line say, like, the doldrums of daily life. Like, her mom is writing her and talking about um, these boring events. But it's like her dad having an abscess in his throat and like her going through menopause and then like you know her sister um going through school and having birthdays like it's this portrait of family life and you feel that sadness of Chantal like missing that and the sadness of her mom who constantly says I want you to like come home oh but you're happy there I know you love there but like I would love to have you home it's like Mm -hmm. it's this 
really sort of heartbreaking seesaw where you can see that Chantal is like looking around at her space and observing all of the the beauty, but it's also like she has yeah. this reminder that things are happening back at home all of the time, whether it's good or bad or neutral or whatever. It's like life is still going on and there are people that you're sort of pulling her away from that, which I find like very heartbreaking too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Part of me wishes that we could hear her responses to these letters. Sure. Uh, like you oh, can yeah. imagine just based off of what her mom says, but I would be very interested to see what the emotional feel of her letters back to her mom are. Mm-hmm. And her mom right. actually appears in her films later on too. I think she's in Gnome Home uh, video um, and she's in some of her other stuff too. So she sort of permeates throughout uh, Chantal Ackerman's work. And something that sort of runs through her style as well that a lot of people references the pacing of a film like this, like, the the slow observation of the everyday to me uh sort of engenders a, a mindset in your brain um with a lot of these films and we talked about this a lot with um another film called taste of cherry um mm. in, in a previous episode but something that like kiristami and ackerman sort of share is the ability to make you feel real time like how do how does that feel to both of you when you're just experiencing like like seconds instead of um, minutes or hours even in films you know what I mean um it's interesting I did I do actually see what you're saying because I got the same kind of feel while watching Taste of Cherry but I mean with this one it kind of felt like I was on a bus and I was kind of just like staring out the window for a while um and I'm cool with that like I said I enjoy people watching but yeah definitely set the tone through that pacing just letting you know like we're moving through this at a nice calm relaxed rate yeah i i agree i feel like she kind of realistically moves through the city as one would in a regular day you you wake up you leave your building you're out on the street it's quiet nobody's there yet you gotta go to work early mm-hmm. go down into the subway which is basically like that transition of street to subway is a huge pacing transition because it's like going from, you know, heaven and then descending into Dante's Inferno. And dark and spooky and creepy and whatnot. Chaos, they're shaking and all sorts of, you know, when the train cars are like moving and rotating. Oh God, yeah, the the, Uh. disconnect between the motion of the camera and the next car down, I thought was super cool. It's so, just something I haven't thought about in ages. Unless you have motion sickness. Also, those subway cars not having doors freaked me out. I was yeah. like, did subway cars really not have doors in the 70s? Like, what the hell? What the hell is going on? Who thought that was a good idea to not they have doors? They give a crap about you. Just get in there and then try and stay in there. It's like sardines being shipped across the world. Like, I completely agree. Like, uh, I mean... The pacing in this film is wonderful, especially those subway scenes. And it's like that super hard cut to the subway um, going at top speed. And mm. um, this is something I love about that sequence in particular, as well as it has this rhythm to it. Like um, if you've you know ridden the subway before, this is sort of familiar because it's like you get on the subway, it speeds up and up and up and it reaches this peak of like, you know, 
not hyperbole, but this like manic peak of speed. And then it just quiets down. You hear the brakes and then it goes to the stop. The doors open and you sort of like let your breath out. And then it happens again. And she like, she trans, she, she like captures that in such a powerful way to me um, where she, she lets you see the rhythm of the everyday too, not just like sort of the aesthetic beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's ridiculous that anybody would think of this movie and think boredom. I know you were yeah. mentioned that at one point and it's like, uh, no, this is the most like active narrative. I feel because it's so pressing that you keep watching. It's like, there's no other way to do. If you're not watching, you're hearing it. And if you're not hearing it, you're watching it. And it's just wave after wave of different parts of the day that are overwhelming. It's like, man, I really want to go to bed now. (laughs) Yeah, but it's forcing you to be an active viewer rather than someone who can just kind of like sit there and tone out everything. Like if Rob was watching, say, a Marvel movie, I imagine that's how that would go compared to something like this. Uh, well, we've talked about it in previous podcasts, but like this is this is a film that would definitely be thrown into like the slow cinema bucket. Have you heard of slow cinema, Colleen? I like haven't. This, oh, God. I won't, I won't go too long on it because I can talk about it for a while, but that there's this term called slow cinema that was sort of cooked up by journalists um, not too long ago. Specifically, I remember, I think Kelly Reichert films sparked it where um, it was a bunch of people saying like, oh, these films are slow, so they should be in this uh, label called slow cinema. So like Ackerman and Brisson and Kelly Reichert and like all the filmmakers I love are, are sort of are sort of thrown in this bucket of like artsy film because the pacing is sort of different than this like um, headlong sprint of a lot of sort of Hollywood movies. Um, so I completely agree that this film to me is super, super active. And when I'm watching it, I'm completely engaged. But there are a lot of people who want film to um, carry them, if that makes any sense, instead of you carrying it, you know, you know like like this, this film asks a lot of a viewer in a very positive and almost like nutritious way if we're going to make a like connection to food or something like this like feeds my my brain in a, where it doesn't like it's not anesthetic it's like uh an accelerant or something like that you know and that's so that's one of the labels that are thrown at some films like this that people call them cultural vegetables which um what? Re- really gets my gander i'll stop talking about vegetables it. thank you very much I'll cut myself off, off before it turns into a full-blown rant. <laughs> I actually want to ask a question yeah. if, to, to cut you off, if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about her mother a little while ago, mm-hmm. and her her mother is a, a Holocaust survivor, and so is her father. Yeah. And her mother spent you know time in Auschwitz, mm-hmm. and I was I wanted to throw this out there if you feel if 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 we could connect the inherited trauma of that, how we could connect inherited trauma to this movie. Yeah, I think to me, it has to do with the tight familial connections that may be the trauma created with them too, right? Like if if your parents have gone through such, like the most horrific circumstances that could ever you know, exist, I think with her family, it brought them super, super close. And then that 
you know, feeling of going to New York and only communicating through letters must have been such a painful experience to me from, you know, being connected in that way and then being disconnected. Like to me, that's how I see a film like this, especially with how much her, her mother misses her. Like I'm sure they're great comfort for each other um, and that yeah. space would not help, you know. Yeah, I mean, you you can feel how strong those family bonds are, perhaps strengthened by, like you were saying, that inherited trauma. So I didn't know that, and that puts an entirely different spin on that. Um, this might actually be one of the first movies I go and revisit uh, after the fact, with that thought in mind. Well, uh, I haven't done I haven't done that with one of these films yet, but I just dropped a major. Yeah, no, that got me reeling a little bit. <laughs> two two of the most interesting sequences to me are like by the end of the film like how do you both feel about the film transitioning from those static shots to the tracking shots in the car or I, those um, shots in motion in the car i really enjoyed it um it was definitely a little jarring just going from the uh, going from static to moving obviously but it seemed to me that like as she's moving more and more people on the street are just watching her go by and like turning their heads be like what <laughs> and <laughs> more so than just like her standing there and i really enjoyed that yeah i love i i i vividly remember that tracking shot because it's in the in the car when i i you imagine like yourself i i clearly can think of myself as like a 10 year old in a taxi in New York, like with my face on the window, like what's happening? What is all this stuff? And, you know, just passing all sorts of weird, like bodegas and kebab shops and like mm. basement openings on the sidewalk. And it's that that vastness of quantity that, that shot perfectly. That's a good word. Yeah. Yeah, good I completely phrase. And it's especially like um, when I watched it this time, I was like, wow, we are blowing past all of these nooks and crannies, which she was just submerged in for the whole film. Like, it's such a genius way to be like, I'm now I'm now uh, engaging with a space in a completely different way. You know what I mean? Like where it's you're getting such a different view of this place instead of her being like, I'm going to sit on the sidewalk and look at a diner for three minutes now we're like blowing past that diner and restaurants and bodegas like you're saying it's like it's it's a blurred portrait instead of one that is like as detailed as it possible like a like a single needle tattoo or something like that one of those like realistic ones um to like you know this blurring crazy like you know portrait so genius yeah i'm talk about chef's pace. kiss yeah chef's kiss of pace <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then after that, it gets to the the ultimate sequences, which is, you know, how we leave um, going on the boat and traveling slowly out from the water. Like what, how did you both feel about that sequence? I thought it was an awesome way to close it out. You spend your entire day moving throughout the city, existing within it, um, being very up close and personal with everything that makes New York, New York. And then you finish it with just a slowly fading away shot on the back of this ferry, which like now that I'm thinking about it could have been the Sea Streak Ferry. 
yeah. no, I thought it, I thought it was a neat way to put a bow on the end of this film. I agree. It's it seems so alien to what the 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 whole movie purports, which is this uh, hyper uh, connection to the earth, being inside the earth, being on the earth, and like traversing these these man-made structures on the earth but then you go out onto the water and it feels so uh unbelievably um kind of i thought i felt euphoric as soon as i saw that shot i was like yes it's over i knew it i was like it's over (laughs) the light is beautiful i'm on the ferry going home Mm. and uh i'm crossing the river sticks And, Good old pal, Charon is here. And I, I mean, it was, it felt so wild because you do not think that nature or water or mutability exists in this very black and white city modern world, but immediately outside surrounded by water and it looks so peaceful and just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't help thinking the whole time um, that it looked like some just unearthly labyrinth of like steel and s- stone. Like when you're when you're going away from it in the water, it just looks like a gigantic sci-fi anthill compared to like the loving detail-oriented shots that she had before. I was like, I don't. It almost felt like dystopian to me looking back and like seeing the two towers and stuff like that. Maybe that was like ominous in that way, but, but looking at the city from such a grand view contrasted the granular way she was sort of portraying it so much. Um, And then like even heightening that again, like even to the last seconds of the film, she's heightening these amazing, like sort of aesthetic contrasts and these like ideological contrasts, um, which is like, of course you are (laughs) to like the last moment the last shred of film you're still like telling us something you know so i'm very glad that we covered this film because this was a film that sometimes this podcast is like oh let's walk through robert's uh film studies uh history but this is really a film that like rocked my world and like chantal ackerman especially is a filmmaker who sort of changed my whole view on what film could be like i'm going to say that for some other people in the future and they're you're just, people are going to be like oh you're just saying that for the people you like but like for truly <laughs> I like you say that about all the directors yeah exactly but like for truly chantal ackerman is like one of the greatest geniuses that has graced us with being a filmmaker i think like bennett glace who writes for split tooth has this line where he's like this person could have been doing anything but they chose film and we're so lucky that they yeah. chose film. And um, I would say that for Chantal too. And thank you so much, Colleen, for being on. This has been a pleasure and please Absolutely. come on in the future. The pleasure is all mine, gentlemen. I, I had a great time. Thank you for inviting me. I, I'm, I'm so glad we got to talk about this movie because even though it, it does have difficult connotations for me, it is, I mean, fant- it's a fantastic film. Yeah, I mean, I probably wouldn't have even gotten a chance to see it if you hadn't recommended it and that just means so much for a film that you started out love hating so yeah. thank you for that yeah. yeah this is a very like this is a film that has a complex experience too which is like something what we want to embrace here on the podcast just richer richer uh so this has been 
art house drive-in episode eight thank you all for listening um we have a little like tiny following at this point and we love each and every one of you for listening so thanks for traveling along with us yeah, um means the world to us oh and, and colleen this is i want to give you a chance to plug your stuff oh heck yeah yeah i go to cadmiummag.com i am always looking for writers the site is currently um being revamped so it might say uh it's unavailable at this time but you can always email me pitches and story ideas at colleenkinslow at gmail.com c-o-l-l-e-e-n-k-i-n-s-l-o-w at gmail.com all lowercase don't know how i bagged that email but that was a score (laughs) um (laughs) And uh, yes, we're always looking for writers, uh, artists, anybody who wants to submit. The first issue of Cadmium Volume 1 is going to be in print very soon. We're working on the design and it's going to be Rizograph printed. So we're very excited and very much so looking for new writers and new voices. Well, I am looking forward to uh, pre-ordering a copy of it then. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and Cadmium Mag is really wonderful so you should be you know it's really lovely work and i and i loved working with you as well and hopefully we'll write many more in the future so um everyone check it out uh Do it. and you can you can plug your social media too if you want but okay yeah follow yeah. me uh i don't have twitter i have instagram uh my handle is colin kins k-i-n-z um so yeah follow me yeah. i guess heck yeah <laughs> Well, this, right. is, this has been fun. And we're not going to tell you what's going to be uh, the film for next week. You're just going to have to show up and figure that out. Uh, so we'll have to catch you next time. Suspense. You've been listening to a Split Tooth Media presentation. You can find us on Letterboxd as Arthouse Drive-In and on Twitter at Arthouse Inn. That's right. We can't change it. Feel free to join us in our little cars. We talk about films each week, give or take. Probably. <laughs> <laughs>